It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hello, and welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I am your host, Natalie B, and today we're going to talk about queens. So queens are super important to any kind of beekeeping operations because obviously they're the linchpin of the health of the colony and its productivity. One of the reasons you might be interested in rearing your own queens is to no longer being dependent on breeders and suppliers of queens and really understanding where your queens are coming from, what qualities they are, as well as knowing that they're very adapted to your local cycles of weather and forage and were never exposed to miticides or dependent on those. The interesting things when purchasing queens is that breeders very often will rear their queens from grafted cells, which tends to be not as good as a natural swarm cell. Research shows that natural swarm cells perform uh, better by at least 30%, if not more, than grafted um, queens. The reason being they are being fed from the day they emerge, they hatch from the eggs as queens instead of being um, selected from worker larvae that have already been reared for at least a few hours, if not more than a day, as workers. They've been fed an inferior type of jelly for an extended period of time and are are never going to be catching up to the nicely fed, fat and happy larvae that um, royal lineage come from. The ones that are destined to be queens, but that the bees assigned to be queens and are fed accordingly. The other thing that happens when breeders are rearing queens is that they get through so many of them and in such fast turnaround than turnover that they tend to not let them um, lay for a few weeks, a couple of weeks at least, after they've returned mated. They'll we'll see some eggs, check for eggs, make sure that the queen is laying, potentially look at the brood pattern, and, but then they will not let them lay for an extended period of time. So they will harvest them immediately, cage them, and ship them or sell them or potentially bank them. And what happens for a queen that's newly mated, um, if she doesn't have the opportunity to lay for at least a couple of weeks, her reproductive system doesn't develop as well as it should, and she's not going to be as good quality as a queen that's been allowed to lay for a couple, three weeks, and letting her ovaries develop a little bit more and her reproductive system to um, establish itself. An additional concern potentially when purchasing queens is that very often those are coming from the same lineage and favored um, mother colonies, whether it be drones or actual queen cells, and are selected for specific characteristics, usually honey production, low defensiveness, low propolization, things like that. And what happens when we select for something, we really are impoverishing the genetic diversity of the uh, candidates as opposed to letting them open mate and 
with a variety of drones from different colonies that are actually local to the area, bringing in a lot of genetic diversity, but also adaptiveness to the local cycles. Another consideration when purchasing queens is that it does get, become expensive and you are dependent on the supply chain, meaning you are dependent on when they are available and it might not match the season or what you're trying to do uh, with your apiary. Now, the good news is that you don't have to purchase queens to make splits or apiary increases or even requeen your colonies, especially if you have more than one. So this is what we're going to talk about today and show you how it's possible to sustainably increase your apiaries, understanding the genetics that are going in it, and rearing better queens on a small scale as a backyard beekeeper. Because remember, if we're not commercial beekeepers, we don't have to keep our bees the way commercial beekeepers do. And by the way, if you're wanting to get queens for the purpose of troubleshooting some issues with the colony, whether it be pests or pathogens, or weakness or failure to thrive, there's also another way than to purchasing those queens. You can also give them a frame of uh, eggs from a colony whose genetics you actually like and take out the queen that's heading that poor colony and letting them rear their own or potentially pinch the queen as long as they have some eggs and enough resources and brood and food to so to let them rear their own queen as well. The next generation, the daughter queen, will have a chance to mate with local drones and dilute the poor genetics that the initial colony was dealing with. So that's another option to take into consideration. But today, we're going to talk more about how to leverage the swarming instinct to rear your own queens in effect. So we're going to talk about a few uh, simple methods to do that. As you may remember, we mentioned that the best queen, the ones that will do the best for your area, will be locally raised and they will be survivor stock. They will be the most resilient ones. What is survivor stock? Survivor stock is basically stock that has been surviving on its own without any kind of hope um, from pesticides, miticides, or otherwise, um, quote unquote, unnatural um, practices that the beekeepers might interject into the cycle of the colony for the sole purpose of curbing the populations of pests or the levels of pathogens. In effect, that means that those queens are able to best follow the cycles of weather and forage. That's just the local part of the equation. And the survivor stock, the survivor genetics, are basically the genetics that are tolerant of pests and pathogens. Now, let's talk a little bit about the difference between resistance and tolerance. So there's a nuance between the two that's very important and yet not often discussed. A lot of breeders out there are looking to breed varus-sensitive hygiene, VSH queens and other ankle biters and all kinds of other bees that are going to be really good at curbing the population, decreasing the population of especially mites with the end goal of decreasing the levels of viruses that the bees are carrying and minimizing their impact onto the health of the colony. So that's resistance. You're fighting against the invader, basically, and, and that's resistance. The other aspect of that uh, in the battle of the bees to thrive in the presence of pests and pathogens is to be tolerant 
of higher numbers of pests and higher titers or levels of pathogens or diseases, basically viruses and bacteria. So what that means is that you have a colony that is tolerant of those and that will thrive despite their presence and their high numbers. I'll give you an example. I have in my yards uh, done the sugar roll tests. I don't like the alcohol tests personally because it kills, you know, so many bees at a time and the colony honestly needs all those bees to perform. So I realize the percentage is small, but if you do it on a regular basis, it adds up really fast. So that's a, that's a, a tax on the health of the colony that I'm not willing to, to pay personally. So I do the sugar roll test. And I, when I test my bees and I find high levels, for example, 13 mites uh, is one example that comes to mind in one colony that was going into winter last year, I was thrilled because I could see that that colony was going to thrive and it was very healthy and it was showing no signs of weakness in the presence of those mites, basically. And sure enough, they overwintered totally fine and they're exploding this spring. They did that in the presence of high numbers of mites and the assumption is that the levels of viruses that those mites transfer were also very high. That's called tolerance. That means they're totally fine when there's a lot of mites and a lot of viruses that are potentially present in the bees, but are not really taking a toll on the health of the colony. So survivor stock is really more of a tolerant stock. Resistance is great, but it's, it's, it's not um, the end game because what that means is that we're still uh, breeding bees that need to have low levels of mites and low levels of viruses to survive and thrive and instead of being strong regardless. What that means also is that resistant stock, the next um, threat that comes in they're going to have to do it all over again. And it's it's part of the equation. A certain level of resistance is great, but really the end game should be tolerance and being strong despite those mites, despite those uh, pests, despite those pathogens. So keep that in mind when you select bees um, for your apiaries, because if you start with let's say, commercial treated Italian bees that are from out of state, like a lot of the packages that people buy. Uh, we see that a lot in Texas. They buy a lot of packages from Georgia or Florida, and uh, those are commercial bees, and, and they've been treated. And those Italian queens are headed those colonies, and they're not tolerant of anything. They do need those pesticides to, to those miticides to survive and thrive uh, because they, they need to minimize the population levels. And that's done through the miticides. So when you are wanting to start your bees as naturally as possible, meaning not using any pesticides, avoiding putting pressure on the pests and pathogens for the bees to basically thrive uh, on their own devices, then it's like everything else. You're stacking the deck in your favor and, and just kind of starting with those weaker bees, those treated Italian commercial genetics, you're going to have to compensate somewhere and that's going to take a toll on the colony. If you start with stronger, more resilient, more adapted 
um, survivor bees, then you're obviously stacking the deck in your favor. So that's something to keep in mind. Now let's talk about the pressure that I was just mentioning, the pressure that the pests put onto the superorganism. That's something that can be leveraged and, and should be leveraged to strengthen the tolerance levels of the colony, meaning the colonies that are not exposed to pests or pathogens um, in significant amounts will not have to find strategies to uh, get stronger and fend for themselves and be healthier. They will just be basically in a bubble in a way. And as soon as a new threat comes in, they will be basically defenseless. And I'm exaggerating, but this, this is the principle. It is therefore important when we raise our own bees or when breeders raise their own bees, is to keep in mind that the pressure that the pests and pathogens put on the bees make them stronger and we can use that to our own advantage. There's a lot of breeders out there also that are using their favorite lines and they're trying to select four specific traits, in particular mite resistance. And that's great, except that's a funnel to a lower genetic diversity, meaning those genetics are being impoverished every time there's a new selection for a specific trait. So I would, I would argue that the selection for traits leads to inbreeding depression, Whereas if we try to select against undesirable traits like hyper-defensiveness or hyper-hygienic behavior, which leads to the demise of the colony when they're too hygienic, if we try to select for a more well-rounded, uh, strong and tolerant um, stock that's going to do well on its own, then we're doing ourselves a favor and, and leveraging those pests and pathogens is the greatest way to do that. That's why I was so happy to see that many mites in the colony that seem to be thriving. But we can't also keep breeding from the same lines of preferred genetics over and over again. And we're disseminating favorite, you know, VSH this and Encombiter that, and it's great, but... I think that, and I would argue that in the end, it's impoverishing our genetic pool. The, there's no silver bullets, right? There's no perfect bee. It's a, it's a mirage thinking that we can breed the perfect bee that's going to work in all circumstances because those bees don't exist. It's all going to be dependent on your local conditions, on your own goals for your beekeeping and whether you're commercial or backyard beekeeper, those goals change and the level of pressure that's put on the bees is different. So there, there's absolutely no silver bullet on queen bee rearing. There's not going to be one size fits all. And it's a mirage that I think that as backyard beekeepers, we need to be aware of. So that leads me to the other aspect of this conversation today is we don't have to be dependent on queen breeders. We don't have to keep buying queens. We, we can raise our own. There's so many ways that we can do that. Uh, the most simple and most effective way being to leverage the swarming instinct, uh, the reproduction instinct of the superorganism. Every spring, a healthy colony will want to swarm and cast their genetics through 
sending the old queen with a bunch of the bees to set up a new camp somewhere and leaving the the nests with food and resources and best chances of survival and a fresh new queen. So that instinct can be leveraged every spring. Every time they feel congested and want to swarm, we can use those conditions and especially those swarm cells to raise our own bees that are going to be best adapted to the local cycles of weather and forage because they're local stock. And how do we do this? At the backyard level, there's several options we may have. And we can get as simple and as fancy as we'd like about this. The simplest way to do this is to wait until the conditions are ripe for queen rearing, meaning there should be a lot of brood of food, eggs and young bees in the colony, as well as a great nectar flow so that the young bees can feed healthy, well-mated queens. And we're going to preempt, in this case, the natural swarming instincts by doing an artificial swarming, meaning splitting a little bit ahead of time from uh, the bees doing it themselves. And it's very, very important, again, to have the right time of the year. The nectar flow is almost there or is there. And there's a lot of forest food resources coming in and lots of bees. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to take half of the resources from the donor hive and put them in another hive, meaning every other frame of brood, we're going to take one out. Every other frame of food, we're going to take one out. Every... Um, um, comb or frames covered with bees, we're going to take one out and put it in the new hive, verifying that we have at least eggs into both sides. And at that point, we don't even have to find the queen. That's called really a, a walk away split. Um, but it's really artificial swarming when the conditions are right. You don't want to do that again when the conditions are not right. Because you're, you'll get poor quality queens at that point. If you're not ready to do that and you can cannot um, come in and manage your, or inspect your colonies every week to look for swarm cells, that's a great way to preempt that. The other way to get around that is to do some space management and wait, uh, make the colony wait and get distracted on other tasks by providing them basically additional space for the queen to lay and additional space uh, for them to build comb. That could be in Langstroth by adding additional boxes, but uh, or in um, horizontal lengths and horizontal tabar highs by adding additional frames or bars at the edge of the bird's nest or potentially if the weather is really warm, uh, adding at least one, uh, two thirds, I mean, one third into the bird's nest. They really don't like that. It gets them into high gear to build some extra comb. But just remember that all empty space is not really empty space to the bees. What empty space is to the bees is space to lay, for the queen to lay. So if you simply put a box on top of a Langstroth hive and walk away, they might still swarm on you and not move up the box. Um, so that's kind of why interspersing and maybe in this case potentially bringing some of the resources up in the second box might help. But to come back to the principle, basically you just want to split the hive in two equally when it comes to brood food, bees and eggs. And at that point, you don't have to worry about it. The bees will rear new queens from the eggs. They are going to be emergency queens. Um, and as such, they're usually inferior. But if you're doing this in an 
nectar flow with lots of food coming in, that should not be an issue. Now, ideally, you should be able to wait until the bees get into the swarming instinct on their own. And the way to do that is you're going to wait for them to be congested and visit the hive every week for um, to see if they've got queen cups built and if those queen cups have been primed with an egg or a young larvae by the time you see them. And at that point, that means they have made up their mind to swarm. And you will be at this point assisting them in taking a split from the colony with the old queen, a couple of comb or frames of honey, a couple of combs of capped brood, and that queen and set it at least 20 feet away, if not to another bee yard, leaving the colony, the donor colony with the swarm cells because they're already rearing good quality queens. And that's going to allow you to increase your apiary and rearing new queens. You could even use some of those queens cells and give them to colonies that are struggling or that need a new queen uh, that don't have one. So that, that's resources that you can use if need be. Leaving most of the queen cells, obviously, into the colony that's rearing a new queen. Now, it's important to know that the longer you wait and the larger your colony and the stronger it is, the more unimpactful, the more benign the splitting of the colony will be, whether they're swarming themselves or whether you're splitting them, uh, leveraging the swarming instinct, um, because they're going to have more resources to rebound in the original colony. And actually, you might potentially be able to make more than just one split. And so there's a timing effect that you have to keep into account. You have to still be in the nectar flow, but the longer you wait, the more resources you're going to have, both for honey production and uh, splitting and queen rearing. So space management goes a long way when, when it comes to that. And that's when making some space, preferably giving them drawn worker comb, by the way, not, not drawn drone comb. <laughs> It's a tongue twister um, and it's going to allow you to have a much larger colony to, to do this. Now, that brings me to another concept, uh, which is an interesting way to do this sustainably. And it's a technique that Les Crowder uses a lot. Uh, we work a lot in double tubber hives, but this could be done in double length, long Langstroth or two uh, Langstroth colonies. The principle is it, called a two to three split. With two colonies, we're going to make three and one of them will actually be able to produce still a lot of uh, honey and potentially bees. So the way this works, you have basically two colonies next to each other, about 15, 16 frames or bars, uh, whether they're in a double tabar hive, double uh, long Langstroth or two basically eight frame deeps of uh, Langstroth. So going into spring, um, both of those hives, both of those colonies will be filled. And through congestion, we're basically going to dare them to swarm. And we're going to look every week into both of those colonies for queen cells, for swarm cells. The signs for, by the way, swarming are lots of cat brood, drone brood capped, young bees, and all of a sudden, that, and all that cap root emerges 
and the bees start backfilling the bird's nest with nectar. And that's when they usually end up uh, starting um, swarm cells because they got nowhere to go for that jelly, that worker jelly that they were producing to feed the, the young. There's no space for young larvae. So they end up rearing swarm cells and using all that royal jelly to feed those queen cells. So when those conditions are there, Bring a smaller box, a, a regular hive, a small tabarnook or um, a smaller five-frame Langstroth box and bring it close to the area where you're going to be working. Take both of the colonies that you are using as donor hives and set them back a few feet and put in place a larger hive, enough to hold all the 22 combs that we're going to pull out of the two hives. So we're going to set up a large hive, whether a long lang or a double taba hive, as a single this time, not as doubles. And then we're going to look for the queen in the first of the donor colonies that we've moved back. And we're going to take her as well as two combs or frames of honey two combs of frames of capped brood and some extra bees. And we're going to put that in that little five frame nook box. So we're going to have leftover 10 or 11 combs or frames that we're going to put in the new long single hive in the front. And we're going to space out each of those bars or frames uh, about three inches each. And it could be double deep Langstroth if you don't have a long Langstroth or a single Taba hive, by the way. So then we're going to put the divide that we took, the two frames of honey, two frames of cat brood and the queen and the bees, and we're going to put that divide back into the original box, uh, which is now mostly empty, and we're going to compensate by adding extra uh, frames or bars to make it back up into a full hive. Then we're going to take the box, the little nook box, and repeat the operation with the second colony that we've pushed back. And we're going to take the 11, 10 or 11 frames or combs that we pulled out of it and intersperse them with the ones in the large um, box in the front. So we're going to end up with 22 combs or frames and the field forces of the two original colonies that are now coming back to that new large single hive. And the two donor colonies that are now basically splits, we're going to move them at least 20 feet apart and or to another out yard just in case, because we don't want the bees to return to the uh, location of their original hive. So now we have two splits with reasonable amount of brood and food and the old queens. And we also have now a big monster of a colony with those 22, uh, 2022 combs that have eggs and lots of food and bees. And they also are getting all the forage force, foraging force that are coming back. So that monstrous colony will now basically get into a brood break as the eggs and young larvae, including the queen larvae, being capped. And the bees that are remaining in the hive have nothing better to do than to go out and forage for food. And they're going to backfill with more and more honey 
until the queen goes out and mate. And it takes about 30 days for, for her to go out and mate and uh, be ready to lay again after the egg is being reared into a queen. So 30 days of going into a brood break, lots of honey being backfilled. And as soon as the queen resumes laying, the new queen resumes laying into the colony, then they will divert back the resources into brood feeding. But until then, all of it was going into honey storage. So in effect, what we've done here is we've created a couple of splits with enough food brood and bees into a season that still uh, allows them to grow. And overwinter, size five frames is a great size for them to go. And overwinter, they might be able to build up more. But we've got two splits and a new queen uh, out of two colonies. We just met three, one of which is going to be large enough to produce a lot of honey and wax. So this is a very sustainable way to rear queens. In addition, some of those queen cells, if you need to, can be cut out to be given to other colonies as needed. Colonies that are struggling, that need requeening, colonies that don't have a queen. Uh, you might be able to potentially make other splits with other colonies that would not otherwise have been able to rear queens because it is uh, energy and, and resource consuming intensive. So this is a great way to rear your own queen in your own backyard. Those queens are going to go out and mate with local drones, which means you're going to bring back a lot of the local survivor genetics into your apiaries and your bees will be lo adapted locally to your uh, weather and forage and they should be more resilient for it. So this is kind of an easy way. There's a couple of techniques here that I've just described on how to rear your own queens as a backyard homestead beekeeper. And I hope this was helpful. If you have any questions, as usual, you can email me at bemindfulhoneyfarms at gmail.com or go to your website at b-mindful.com. And before I go, I wanted to remind you that um, the World Bee Day is coming up on May 20th and the Hayes County Beekeepers Association is going to be selling the tickets for 12 hours of content on natural beekeeping and various techniques you can use in your own apiaries to minimize the use of pesticides and go and uh, rare your bees as naturally and as sustainably as possible. It's a great value. I highly recommend it. The speakers this year are going to be Jacqueline Freeman from Song of Increase. We're going to have Ange Roll from They Keep Bees. We're going to have Kim Flodham, uh, the editor of the Bee Culture magazine and the author of several books, including his latest, Common Sense Natural Beekeeping. We will have uh, Daniel Weaver from Bee Weaver Apiaries, Dr. Juliana Rangel from the Texas A&M Honeybee Lab. We're going to have Jane Rasmussen from Intuitive Treatment-Free Beekeeping, Sarah Red Laird, Bee Girl, and Les Crowder, obviously, Dr. Leo Sharashkin from Horizontal Hives, Dr. John Kiefus from the Bond Method, and also Dr. Stefan Stangashu from apitherapy.com. So it's a great lineup, y'all, and I highly encourage you to go to hayescountybeekeepers.com slash world-b-day-2022 to look it up and purchase your tickets if you're interested. It's going to be live for the 12 hours, but recorded and you will get the recording afterwards if you sign up. 
Anyway, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this section. If you have any questions, just let me know. And in the meantime, be mindful. Thanks. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.